If the Prime Minister's in hospital with coronavirus, who's in charge of Britain's security? I would expect to see certain actors in world politics, like Mr Putin, like President Assad of Syria, using the, the distraction of the Western powers to try to clean up. How the military mindset has to change for the long haul helping civilian authorities. Of course you, you, you want to get stuck in but there is a balance between being enthusiastic and being a pain. And as Africa prepares for the pandemic, are there lessons from the way British forces helped tackle Ebola in Sierra Leone? There are some different approaches that might be effective that sort of relate to just how society operates in, in a country like Sierra Leone. I'm Kate Chabot, and this is SITREP. Thousands have lost their lives in Britain's coronavirus pandemic and thousands more are in intensive care units across the country. But the news this week that the Prime Minister is among them was a genuinely unnerving moment for many. Boris Johnson's condition worsened over the weekend and by Monday evening he was in the intensive care unit of a major London hospital. Among those wishing him well, the Chief of the Defence Staff General Sinek Carter. All our thoughts in the armed forces and our prayers are with the Prime Minister at the moment and we hope, wish him well for a very, very speedy recovery. We work straight through to the Prime Minister, but of course there's the National Security Council that's wrapped around him, formed of many of the Cabinet Ministers and supported by the National Security Advisor. And I think on that basis, we're pretty confident that it's business as usual as far as the operations are concerned. We'll hear a little more from him later. Dominic Raab takes the Prime Minister's place, but he's only stepping up as required. Technically, Boris Johnson remains in charge despite his weakened condition. Tobias Elwood, who chairs the Commons Defence Select Committee, is confident it doesn't leave a leadership gap at the very top. I would suggest that if there were anything new uh, to be considered a strategic change, a scientific breakthrough, or indeed, let's say, a hostile state or non-state uh, uh, intervention, then absolutely the Prime Minister would then make that final judgment on what should be done. For the moment, I'm very content to see Dominic Raab uh, continue uh, the work that the Prime Minister has set. But how real is the threat that others will seek to exploit the potential vacuum at the top of government? Professor Michael Clark, former Director General of the Royal United Services Institute, told our reporter Hannah King he's worried about that. The comforting thing from the military is that the framework of decisions will come through the National Security Council. And I don't think that will change particularly. And also, as far as helping with the coronavirus uh, measures are concerned, there's no big political issues here. The political issues all lie elsewhere. But the military know what they've got to do. They know where they're helping. They know where they may have to help. So in a way, it's just a question of, as it were, the NSC telling them, right, now go on to this phase, now go on to that phase. They're really fairly well planned. So I don't think the military will be too bothered about the uh, authority structure because it won't affect them too much. Do you think Dominic Rapp will be briefed in any way on defence issues or do you think the government is just very much concentrated on everything coronavirus? I doubt if Dominic Rapp has been uh, specifically briefed on defence and security questions. At least on paper, everything should be OK. But, you know, we are putting immense stress on individuals here. I mean, these people have now been, you know, two and three weeks at the cold face of this crisis. And you can see, you can just see that some of them are, are really getting quite tired. You know, nobody can do this forever. So we have to be aware of that, I think, when we think about what happens in the next four to six weeks. The Chief of the Defence Staff has confirmed that Dominic Rabb will chair the National Security Council. How worried should we be about national security 
right now. I would expect to see certain actors in world politics, like Mr Putin, like President Assad of Syria, possibly Mr Erdogan of Turkey, using the, 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 the crisis, the distraction of the Western powers to try to clean up in some of the crisis areas in which they're involved. And I suspect that some of the crises, some of the civil wars that we've got ongoing in Afghanistan, in uh, Libya, uh, in northern Iraq and in Syria, and in Yemen, I think these situations not only will be unaddressed by the Western world, but we may see some ruthless actors trying to use the distraction to actually as it would clean up um, from their point of view. And that will actually be quite bad for British security policy. And I think our security apparatus has got to be really um, on its mettle in the next two or three months to see what may be changing and, and decide whether we can do anything about it or not. Most of these threats that we're speaking about really depend on good intelligence. And so our intelligence uh, organizations, and certainly GCHQ, I think are working at the moment at a very high level to try to see what is happening around the world in terms of things that may affect our direct interests. And that's the best way to, to deal with it, is simply to get as, it were, as much prior notice as possible as what might be going on. The fact that we've got 20,000 troops on standby for COVID shouldn't detract from the fact that we, al we also do have the ability to, to do other things in the world, but we all only normally do things as part of an alliance. And the Western alliance at the moment is not in shape to act as an alliance on most issues. That was Professor Michael Clark speaking to our reporter, Hannah King. Well, joining me is BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Uh, Christopher, Mike Clark mentioned there the potential for other nations to look at Boris Johnson's incapacity and see an opportunity. And long before he was taken to intensive care, there were fake news stories out of Russia claiming he was already on a ventilator. Yeah, but we're not talking here about the possibility of turning into a full-scale war or something like that. Uh, what you get is an intelligence assessment from, let's say, the GRU, the Russian intelligence, uh, military intelligence service. They look at the wiring and diagram of British higher command and politics and the civil service, and they look at it and see how it holds together during the time of emergency procedures. And what we do is in the is then written into their uh, tapestry for the transition to war. In other words, it is almost an academic exercise. Far more interesting is what happens to the smaller people. I mean, if you think about 1982, Argentina uh, went to war with the United Kingdom over the Falklands simply because there was a crisis in Argentina. And therefore, they took it as an excuse, or partly as an excuse, to get out of a problem they had by creating a problem elsewhere. And that's the sort of thing that you would look at is if you were National Security Council in the United Kingdom. You look, you look at the management of crisis, threat assessment, threat development, allied uh, or, or NATO response, bilateral response, that's with another country, and therefore Britain's international position. And that's as simple as that in peacetime as well as in difficult times. Yeah, and Christopher, also some fears expressed there that the West is in no real state to respond collectively to any security threat that might emerge during this pandemic. The real important thing is this. When you look at the international scene and the security uh, problems that we might have, we don't look at them and say, good Lord, you know, the Russians might take this as an opportunity to, to invade, in, invade or anything like that. We're not talking those levels. We're talking about can we maintain the normal security? And that's why when Mike Clark was talking about, sort of, for example, GCHQ, you're listening around to what other governments are saying. And also you hopefully other organizations, perhaps extremist uh, terrorist threats, and you could easily examine the idea that this is an opportunity at one point 
for there to be a terrorist threat or even an individual terrorist threat. That is the size of the problem. Christmas Day with us. The head of the UK's military general, Sir Nick Carter, last month warned the forces to treat the response to the pandemic as a six-month operational tour. And after the Queen recalled the spirit of wartime in her message to the nation a few days ago, he says it's a good way to think about the crisis we now face. Using the term war is a helpful analogy because I think it gives people a binding sense of purpose. And of course, on the 8th of May, which is not that far away now, we will have the 75th anniversary of Victory in Europe Day. And I think that will be a really useful way for us to think hard about how we're going to get through this. And I thought what Her Majesty said uh, on Sunday was, was really uplifting, because, of course, the point is that we are going to emerge a better society after this. We're going to be more united. And when you see the extent to which that community spirit is now prevailing, whether it's the extraordinary offers of help we've had, you know, whether it's one million lunchboxes per day for the NHS or Mercedes Formula One team putting its all behind building ventilators, or indeed the local level where the shielding programme is so much is being done by local charity. I just think things will be different when we come through this, and I think we'll come through it a better society. And I think the war analogy is not a bad way of getting people to see that it will be possible to get through this, and it will be about a binding sense of purpose that gets us through it. Well, Tim Robinson is a former Major General in the Army. He was Head of Military Support to Civil Powers between 2012 and 2015, overseeing the military response to flooding and strikes by prison officers and fuel tanker drivers. I spoke to him earlier and he told me military leaders are right to view it as a long-term commitment. It's not a nine-to-five job when military people soldiers, sailors and airmen deploy on operations, whether that be a three-month tour, six-month or indeed for longer, they get themselves into a certain frame of mind, which means they can invest fully in the operation and they can sustain it for the long run. And that is both a physical and a mental state. How does that change compared to previous examples of the military helping civilian authorities? It must be quite different. Well, this crisis is different in in many respects, from even other UK domestic operations that the military have been involved in. I was involved in, for example, the floods of 2014 and covering uh, industrial action, for example. And these things were very different because they were quite local, quite regional. They were fairly short and defined. You could see the progress of the operation by, in one case, the weather, in another case, industrial negotiations. So, This one, of course, for everybody, is a bit less defined. Uh, It affects a lot more people. It's more ubiquitous. And therefore, it's absolutely right to have um, a a full commitment philosophy and a full commitment uh, in the way the operation is designed. The military prides itself on planning. To what extent can you plan for something like this? Because as one person we spoke to told us, the rule book hasn't been written. That's true. People are learning all the time. The military tends to approach problems using principles and doctrine, and that is inherently flexible. So you know that whatever the crisis, whatever the, the war or the operation, you can apply a certain series of principles to it. So whilst there isn't a playbook for this operation yet, a precise one, there are lots of principles that will stand us in very good stead. For example, the need to both run the current operation, so make sure that you can build a hospital today and tomorrow and uh, deliver supplies into this location and then that location, 
but also having others who are looking at what's going to be happening in six months, trying to anticipate the way the operation might evolve. So you're not surprised, essentially. One thing General Sir Nick Carter was keen to rule out was the military assisting in public order. But just imagine the military found themselves in a situation where a riot broke out, for example. What would they do then? Well, I don't think that's going to happen in this case. What's striking about what's going on now is how everybody's pulling together. And it is, I don't think it's kind of spin or exaggeration to say it's become a real national effort. The vast majority of the population are following the government guidelines and staying at home and protecting the NHS and saving lives that way. And everybody just wants to protect each other and return to normal as soon as possible. You were talking earlier about having to change the mindset for a six-month operation. What about the military working to civilian authorities? Do they have to change their mindset? And, and if so, how? I think military people, and I say this now as a civilian and a retired officer, I think military people always need to change their mindset slightly when interacting with Uh, civilian authorities. I mean, we tend in the military to talk to each other in a certain way. Um, There's a kind of language and an expectation. Um, You have to be familiar with that because in stressful situations, it really helps. But if you're going to be talking to organisations that are different, that are outside the armed forces, then you have to adjust the way you communicate and perhaps the way you pass information so it's accessible to them. So it's a question of just being empathetic, explaining things and behaving in a certain way that you're, the people you're working with, your partners in this fight, uh, will understand and appreciate. You've spoken about the importance of getting the balance right. The military is keen to help out. And from your experience, have you ever felt frustrated and wanted to do more than the civilian authorities asked of you? There's a natural enthusiasm amongst soldiers, military people, to want to be helpful. I mean, we're very kind of solution uh, orientated so of course you you know you want to get stuck in but there is a balance between being enthusiastic and being a pain and it's right that the civilian powers ministers for example or government departments they request support and then it's provided and we don't all go off doing our own thing there is um, a duty on the military to explain what is available to say you might not know this but this option also exists And so there is an information flow going both ways, but that needs to be done in a helpful way, not in a a way which is just designed to kind of carve out territory. That was former Major General Tim Robinson. Um, Christopher, a balance between being enthusiastic and being a pain, is it difficult to strike that balance when the military are working for civilian authorities at home? It can be stressful, but let's let's put it in one, one context. The military understands authority. It understands rank. You know, they look at each other, they know who they are, they know where they're from, they know what authority they have. And that's not always the case when you're working with civilians, you're not quite sure the, the length of their authority, the breadth of their authority, and therefore you have to be very, 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 very cautious. It is a different environment which the military learn to adjust to far more than the uh, civilians are. But above all this, we were talking earlier, like, who runs the whole security thing and the relationship between the military and the civilians. The man in charge is not really the the foreign secretary. The man really in charge, in practical charge, is Sir Mark Sedwell. He's the cabinet secretary, ex-spy actually. He's the cabinet secretary who pulls it all together. He also happens to be uh, the national security advisor. And so his power with his staff, which is a good, you know, a decent sized staff, including all the civil servants in the country, 
he is the man that actually has the control. And so when you get the balance between enthusiastic and being a pain, there is a there, there is an enthusiasm, but there is also a warning. There is a, a, a sense of what should be going on, which is coming right from the top in the cabinet, but not from the cabinet ministers, but from Sir Mark Sedwell. He's the man to watch. This is Sidrap. The coronavirus pandemic is straining the healthcare systems of the world's richest countries. So what about those where the situation is already far more bleak? The outbreak is gathering pace across Africa with warnings many countries simply will not be able to cope. Some are already running out of hospital beds. It's 20 years now since the UK began a military intervention in Sierra Leone. And six years ago, British forces played a key role in the country's battle against Ebola. So what's the situation there now? I spoke to Kate Dooley, Regional Director for West Africa at the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. The Minister of Health has been out in the public saying that there are about, I think, 14 or 15 ventilators, for example, available in the country, some of them recently procured. I mean, that's still only about one ventilator per million of population. So it's extremely low numbers. You know, on one hand, I think African governments like in Sierra Leone have had the benefit of seeing this outbreak take off in Asia and Europe and North America. So they've had the benefit of their experience and have acted much more quickly, have been able to act more quickly once they've had sort of the first sign of cases in their their regions and countries. But yeah, I mean, one ventilator per million people or so obviously isn't going to cut it once you've got large numbers of people who are having complications. Um, And they also have, you know, very weak health systems already, very few health workers, people who don't have training in how to use oxygen and ventilators and, and things like that. So I think it is very, very concerning for sure. Normally, a country like Sierra Leone might look towards the developed world to countries like the UK for help in this situation. But of course, countries that they might look to normally are struggling themselves. Absolutely right. It's one of the trickiest things about this is, you know, I was in Syria during the uh, Ebola outbreak. I was working in the government in the president's office and we worked with a lot of uh, British military operation. Grit Rock was was deployed. The, the British government through Difford and others provided enormous assistance. And, the, you know, that was the, the whole world was watching those three countries, Syria and Liberia and Guinea at the time. And even then getting the resources they needed, the health workers required, etc., was difficult. And right now, as you say, I mean, the whole world is distracted by their own crises, and rightfully so. Um, but it does mean that there isn't that sort of immediate help coming in terms of human resources that they might need. Hopefully, there will be some more financial resources flowing. And there's a lot of discussions happening, particularly, say, at the G20 level. Um, the WHO is looking at its coordination function. The African Union within Africa is standing up to look at solutions to coordinate responses and be a channel for, for financial assistance. But supply chains are also extremely disrupted and there's huge competition globally for the really critical supplies needed like PPE for health workers. Everybody's scrambling for that. You hear all sorts of stories about access to PPE, bidding wars between, you know, the Americans and South Americans and Asia and so forth. So so Africa's a very significant disadvantage um, in terms of its resource to, to respond here. You've heard the kind of advice that there is in the UK about social distancing and staying at home. How practical is that in a place like Sierra Leone? Sierra Leone certainly is a very different context. And although they have the benefit of having seen the measures that other countries have rolled out that have uh, assisted in, in China, for example, locking down Wuhan, lockdowns have followed across across Europe. And we have a, a version of that 
in the UK now, for example, uh, it's a very different context. And actually, a lot of people in these poorest countries are really living literally hand to mouth. You know, they have to go out every day to to sell uh, basic items, to you know, go to work. Um, and then buy basic goods for their their families, food, water, those types of things. So locking down completely has a really disproportionate sort of economic and also social impact when you're kind of forcing people to to stay indoors. There are some different approaches that might be effective that sort of relate to just how society operates in in a country like Sierra Leone. So you know, night times are replaced for social gatherings. So you know, while a curfew might seem counterintuitive in a way because obviously it means that well more everybody has to go out to to get food and go to work and things and they'll just do that within less hours so won't that increase the density of people who are interacting with one another but actually you know having a curfew means that less people are interacting socially at night it might actually help so these are the sorts of things that they're trying to consider while weighing up the economic impacts that this is going to have on their population ultimately it's really only going to work over a long period of time, if you can engage people at a community level and mobilise community leaders to help communities to accept what's going on and the steps that are needed to be taken. This is something that took Sierra Leone a long time during Ebola to get right. Ebola outbreak really hit up against sort of deeply held practices and beliefs around you know, burial processes, for example. And uh, eventually, you know, they, they did come to a way to do safe burials that could be done that in a way that was in accordance with those traditional and religious practices, but were, were done safely. So that's a really critical element now to sort of lead to the behaviour change that's going to be required to, to reduce transmission. That was Kate Dooley from the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. Well, Christopher Lee, our defence analyst, is still with us. Uh, Christopher, you heard there the idea that different cultures might need different advice to halt the spread of the virus. Especially when you think of in, in, in terms of Africa, the average age of an African is just under 20 years old. Get that in your head. You've got a different concept of what you have to do because they are independent. They have to get out and do things. They also have large numbers of people, and we're talking of millions, who have heart problems, who have lung problems anyway, and in very young people. And when you start thinking to yourself that you take some like South Sudan at the moment, there are 1.2 million people in a refugee status who are on the move, and they're on the move together, and they've already got signs of this virus, and you can imagine what the possibilities are there. And then you see the fact that they're not borders in the way that we know borders and governments we know borders in, in say, Western Europe. And the problems are quite different. And therefore, you cannot give civil answers. You cannot give similar answers to them. And overall, you've got the basic sort of thing. When we say, go wash your hands, in what? Bring us the water and we'll wash our hands. And when you say, you mustn't, you know, just go home, don't go out on the streets. As this we were hearing just then from Kate Dooley, nighttime is gathering time when people get out to talk about things uh, otherwise and when they go back and stay at home 15 people to a room. And Christopher, some, some news coming out of Saudi Arabia uh, about the cessation of hostilities in Yemen, uh, allegedly because of the coronavirus. It's for two weeks. Lock up Yemen for two weeks. I'll tell you what, the Houthis, the people that the Saudis are fighting against, they're going to be slow to react to, to this, but it, put it that way at the very least. And the other thing is that war isn't so simple and possible without the right amount of equipment and also the people to fight it as the Saudis have got at the moment. So a 
fortnight to regroup, then we'll see what happens. It's three weeks since the lockdown was imposed in the UK, but many vulnerable people have been told to stay indoors for up to three months. Loneliness is inevitable and elderly veterans are among those advised to stay at home for 12 weeks. Care homes are appealing to the public to help combat the loneliness by sending letters to veterans struggling with the lockdown. For SITREP, Kirsty Chambers has this story. Lifting spirits at a time of real crisis is new for a lot of people, but some have been here before, like the veterans at the Royal Star and Garter, a care home with military ties. Flo Mahoney is a veteran who served in the Women's Auxiliary Air Force in the Second World War and now resides at the care home. She's 98 years old and says this generation is pulling together now, like they did during war times. I think that any crisis brings people together. In, in one way and another. And during the war, my parents were the first ones to have a telephone. And so neighbours would come and say, do you mind if I have a telephone call at six o'clock? And you did all sorts of things like that. It, it brings people together. It brings out the best in people. Flo arrived at the Royal Star and Garter in December and following the lockdown is greatly missing her new friends, as even the residents cannot see each other, she says. I'm fed up with being penned in, as it were. We all hope that this will finish as soon as possible so we can get up and get going again, you know. It's very difficult. I've been here uh, uh, just before Christmas I came in and I've made friends and suddenly I've, not, I've lost them again. The care home wants the public to write their residents' letters to help with loneliness and isolation. Sitting two metres from Flo is Helena Mayer, the home manager of the Star and Garter. She says they're finding new ways for the residents to stay connected. It is challenging, but the, the fact that they've still got that link in via the iPads is helping, I think. Um, and there's lots of letters coming in, lots of postcards and cards as well, which is lovely. One little duck, number two. The staff are trying to keep their residents busy through a range of activities, including live-streaming bingo to the residents in their rooms. Flo has been keeping her mind occupied by walking the corridors, but says for residents who aren't able to walk around, a letter would really help them. I think to get a letter through your front door is an amazing thing. And, and if you're not used to getting correspondence or you're not meeting people, it must be lovely. And I'm missing it, you know. The Star and Garter isn't alone in its appeal. Other organisations are also trying to help veterans, among them the International Bomber Command Centre in Lincolnshire, who have set up Operation Gratitude. Nikki Vanderdrift, the chief executive of the centre, explains why they set up the appeal. All of our veterans, of course, come under the vulnerable um, policy, so they're in isolation for 12 weeks. And actually, loneliness is a huge issue, even without this. And so we thought it would be a great idea to get all those kids that are at home to create art, write stories, write letters, and then we will send them out to the veterans from here. With the uncertainty of how long this lockdown will last, veterans could be relying on the kindness of strangers for a while yet. That was Kirsty Chambers with that report. Uh, Christopher, a couple of things to catch up on before we go. The acting US Navy Secretary resigned this week after he fired the captain of an aircraft carrier who was pleading for help with a coronavirus outbreak on his ship. It's a bit of cartoon politics, isn't it, in Washington? It was a damn stupid thing to have done apparently. And the captain of that aircraft carrier 
was having to deal with an incomer, as he would put it limit, uh, militarily, that he'd never been trained to do. So, you know, it's a small thing. But it's the same thing, 4,000 men on board, 4,000 men on board, about the same size as a cruise ship. Look what happens to them. We're clearly some way from the UK lockdown being eased, but already some thoughts being given to what should happen once the outbreak is over. I think it's very important. We had last night uh, Giuseppe Conte, for example, Prime Minister of Italy, saying that the reaction to this ought to be an EU thing. Otherwise, the e- what's the purpose of the EU? And the EU collapses. It's a much bigger thing. There are people at the moment, very influential people, United Kingdom, people like Gordon Brown and Tony Blair and uh, the Secretary General of, uh, of, of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres. They're thinking this should be international. Now, take this on a wider sense. This is the Black Death of the 14th century visited yet again on us. And that can only either burn itself out, which is which no virus ever does, or it's going to need the international uh, effort. And the international effort can only come when countries are saying, we're not doing this individually. It is a big thing, and we're going to have to do it through, for example, the United Nations. It's got to be that one big and combined effort. That is big thinking. That is the end of world government, if you like. And it is a different way of dealing with international affairs. That is what we are going to face. And people like Giuseppe Conte should be listened to. And that is it for this week. Thanks to you, Christopher, and to all of our contributors. Don't forget, there's more on the military response to the coronavirus outbreak at forces.net slash news. And you can always get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. While you're online, why not subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode? For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening. Bye for now. (laughs) 